you're listening to CS Book Club. We're reading Introduction to Graph Theory, and today we'll be talking about Chapter 2, Graphs. Uh, I'm Brian, and with me is Justin. Hey! Clint. Hi, everyone. And Amy. Hi! So, graphs, how do they work? Well, we have this great quote in the second paragraph that helps us. Strictly speaking, therefore, we don't know what we're talking about. (laughs) I did have that highlighted. Well, that about wraps it up. I highlighted that one. That is the way it is with pure mathematics. Let's start a little bit simpler. What is a set? A set is a collection of distinct objects, none of which is the set itself. Precisely. And I found it pretty interesting how they kind of talked about how that was not the case initially. Like it wasn't known if a set could contain itself? Yeah, like it, um, it, it used to be able to contain itself before, and then when discovering other... You know, definitions or properties, they realized that was not compatible with with the initial assumption that it could contain itself. That uh, that was a special paradox, which I hope we discuss a little bit. A little, yeah, yeah. Russell's paradox, which I thought was interesting. The the part I liked most about this chapter was the first half of the chapter where they covered two or three different paradoxes. That was actually really great thought exercises. the uh, The rest of the chapter, um, well, it didn't have fun paradoxes, so. Thus, it was not as good. Uh, it, it, it waned a little bit for me. The paradoxes like were great. I like the adjective of fun thrown in there. So yes, a set is a collection of unique things. Distinct things. Um, not necessarily of the same category. And the examples given are like 1, 2, 3A, or 12Q dollar Empire State Building. Yeah, I had fun with this first early introduction to how you can push the limits of this because I feel like as a programmer I was like, yeah, I saw that coming. Um, the, but be careful for the words collection and object are used in a slightly unconventional fashion. We are allowing collections of infinitely many things, or just one thing, or even no things. I'm like, yep, I wrote a test exactly like that this morning. <laughs> yeah, I just kind of assume that things like uh a, a set can be empty is just common knowledge, but I, I guess it really is something we learn as programmers. Yeah, I think as a middle schooler, a lot of that would have blown my mind. I would have been like, wait, there can be nothing in it, and it's still like actually a thing we can talk about? I have to admit that I do still kind of find the proof of uh, that there is only one empty set to be fairly profound. Um, I don't know, it's just so concise and elegant. And it's something where you're like, do I need to prove this? But then you can. So, yeah, you do. Yeah, and it, it changed my um, my vocabulary to, instead of you talking about a an empty set, I started referring to it as the empty set. Ah, yes, that was nice. <laughs> Not even being sarcastic. Like, that was, that was like a, a kind of a, oh, yeah, okay, that totally makes sense. Like, there aren't empty sets. There's just an uh, empty set. Like, that actually made total sense. But it wasn't something I had thought much of before. So I guess we could talk about the Pythagorean paradox, since that's like, you know, Clint's favorite, maybe his second favorite paradox. Well, so <laughs> this one, I actually, so this one, it was entertaining because I had to think about it quite a bit. But you did get into like math where are we doing like, yeah, you know, we were doing division and squares and stuff. And I was like, well, that's no fun. Square roots of things. Um but it was interesting, and part of me would just really like the uh, the idea of learning about the Pythagoreans, who I kind of looked up on Wikipedia, because 
that such a group of people existed was interesting to me. Oh, man. I was so intrigued by that one sentence. Tell us more. (laughs) What are these quasi-religious rituals? Yeah, the people who are like, oh, I'm so into math, it's like my religion. And I'm going to do, like, draw squares in the sand and come up with mind-blowing, like, algorithms that you didn't even think existed. Like, that's kind of neat. Yeah, the things they don't tell you in middle school. Yeah, they don't tell you a lot. The crazy thing is that it was, like, heretical to believe in irrational numbers. Like, you'd be, like, exiled and or killed if you proposed that the square root of two could exist. So I'm trying to recall what this was. Had to do with measuring strings. Uh, this is the one in my head where I, in my head I solved it by, or, or I came to realize what it meant by picturing an, a, a written out number with the like, decimal, a floating point number, and then imagining a fraction in which I couldn't determine what the exact decimal, or, or it was going too many decimal places that I wouldn't actually be able to comprehend how exact it was it's probably not completely correct but it just made me think that like you know a a number written as a decimal point versus a a fraction or a rational number would uh are are separate things although if you think about like a third you know that's 0.3 repeating that will never Mm -hmm. terminate but it's still rational yes i think the the proof here is um you know, I remember first seeing this proof and kind of marveling at, like, I think the key insight is, like, okay, well, if it's rational, then we can write it as, like, A over B, or P over Q in this case. And then from that, you can, like, arrive at the contradiction by, I mean, it looks like you're just kind of, like, moving stuff around, right? Like, what if I squared both sides? Um, but it with, like, a little bit of algebra, you reach, you reach a contradiction, which is quite nice. But I think I disagree with his... Um, assessment that mathematicians have been taught to mistrust intuition. I feel like intuition is a huge part of math, but it's a matter of kind of honing your intuition. And um, I don't know, like, you know, the Pythagoreans, I think, arrived at, they arrived at a place where they could have concluded that the square root of two is real, not like a real number, but like, it's like a a legitimate thing. Um, But some other impulse led them to believe that that was impossible or wrong somehow and i think mathematicians will follow their intuition but also you know sort of like climbing like prove themselves along the way yeah i think he kind of hits on that in the last bit before russell's paradox where he's saying that it's not that intuition doesn't have a place in mathematics but it's more about helping you find the way about if you are going to spend time what is worth investigating and what is worth trying to prove i think you know, intuition helps us see that it's probably not worth our time even bothering to prove that one is not two. Obviously, that is, that could be, that could reveal some very interesting concepts about what is, what is our concept of numbers, but it may not be the route you want to take, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the takeaway I got from that was that intuition can be a driving force, but it shouldn't be relied upon. Certainly intuition itself is not a reason. Yeah. And to favor logic over intuition. Like, I don't know, maybe intuition is a good indicator of something that's worth proving, or actually maybe it's the opposite. Maybe your intuition can, like Amy was saying, maybe intuition is a great idea to follow if uh, 
you find yourself thinking, should I prove one equals two? Maybe you should just follow your intuition and not do that. <laughs> yeah, I think it is kind of interesting to see how these first few paradoxes maybe set us up to appreciate some of the drier, um, drier proofs, drier wording that we'll see later on in the chapter. And I expect throughout the, the book, uh, you know, I certainly imagine, uh, let's, here we go. I'm open to page 107. If I started reading this page, I am sure I could put you all to sleep. But if we're reading these paradoxes, you know, there is something really, really compelling about uh, some of these conflicts between what we intuitively think is true and what we come to realize needs a little bit more logical investigation. So I think it's, it's interesting to see that maybe these first few paradoxes set us up to accept some of the uh, more challenging and difficult definitions later on. And speaking of paradoxes, we have Russell's paradox like right after this one. It's like a it's like a twofer. Yeah. So why do you think they? What do you think the author did that? Started off the two chapters basically diving straight into paradoxes. It's like let me show you things that are or how things were, and let me show you how they were just completely screwed. Like it's an interesting way to start the chapter. I think it gave me an appreciation for the definitions and f- for the rigidity of, of each of them. That if, if, if we're not as exact as these definitions are with, with how we explain them, then it leaves room for these paradoxes to emerge. So we need to constantly be refining the definitions to be more and more precise as we find more paradoxes. Especially or Russell's for- paradox, right? It hinges on the fact that the definition was wrong. Yeah. But you're right, Clint. The Pythagorean one feels a little bit of a non sequitur. <laughs> well, maybe not. Maybe it was just kind of trying to, again, condition the reader to um, <clears throat> not to be more flexible in their thinking and open-minded in their thinking and their concepts of, of that they entered reading this book of what things are, what graphs are. You know, they talked about in the first chapter of a graph being x and y coordinates with on a you know on a chart like we need to let go of that as far as the definition of graph so maybe it's just more conditioning of like you know some things make total sense but we really need to favor logic over uh just how things feel um or or what you're comfortable with so that was kind of what i was leading into i wonder if it's just kind of like a conditioning thing and also kind of gives you an insight into i guess maybe the the mathematics community you know, they accept things, and the best way to make a great change is when you discover something is to prove a paradox or, or dis, you know, demonstrate a paradox. Because, I mean, that's what you eventually come down to kind of what Amy was saying. Like, if you can boil down an assumption to something that ends up being one equals two, then obviously people are going to take a real serious look at what you've done. So maybe it was just kind of what I was thinking. All righty. Well, so after the paradoxes, we actually get into the graph part of graph theory. Well, we didn't discuss Russell's paradox. Well, would you like to discuss Russell's paradox? Well, I'm, I'm trying to read up on it because I'm trying to remember what it was. <laughs> I, well, I remember the gist of it. it was yeah, that, it was that, yeah, a, a, a set cannot be a, an element of itself. And it talked about um, if you split sets into uh, ordinary and extraordinary, then a the set s must be either ordinary or extraordinary but if it's one then it can't be the the other um and then it ends with you know there are no extraordinary sets and 
S is just a, there's a new word called a class, which I found interesting as, as, a, as a programmer to think about how that related to programming, if, if in any way. Um, yeah, Justin, I had the same thing written in my notes where it was interesting to see these, uh, to see these people say that in order to preserve logic, we need to make sure that something is either true or not true. Yeah. And it makes me think, all right, so programming is a practical application of logic. And I think, I think all four of us work in a world where our code runs on systems that encode things as ones and zeros, but that's not true of everyone in our profession. And that's not necessarily the basis of all logical systems. Certainly, it's not true for our own minds. And so it's interesting to see the choice to reject a third possibility that something might be sort of true, but not really true, um, or in this case, need its own special category. Also related to program, I like that the paradox was resolved with something called the theory of types. Yeah, the, the, the gist of this was that, okay, so there are sets that are normal, right? Ordinary. That's like one, two, three. Uh, wait, is that right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then there are sets that are extraordinary that contain other sets. Well, they contain themselves, right? Like you could have an ordinary set that contains another set. You just can't have an ordinary set cannot contain itself. You can't, you can't have set A... B equals to like one, two, three, A. Like that's and an extraordinary set, correct? Yep. Yes. So an extraordinary set is a set of element of itself. So the, oh, the crux okay. of this of this paradox then is that say you have this set S, which is a collection of all ordinary sets and nothing else. All it has is every conceivable or every possible ordinary set. And then so the 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 paradox part is that in so doing, it itself is Ordinary. An ordinary set. Yeah. So then it's actually an element of itself, which makes it not an ordinary set. That I had to read that paragraph like two or three times to like really grasp that. And then I thought the, the way out of it was great. The way out of it's like, all right, well, we have this paradox. Let's just not do that. <laughs> let's, just, let's just cram up something else. Just change else. the definition. Yeah, there we go. See, Boom. we have to solve the problem if we just change the rules. Move on. I, I thought that was, um, at first, I thought that was a very cheap, and I was like, well, that's really disappointing to learn about this cool paradox and then to learn that they're just like, well, we'll just change everything. But That's what winners do. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, then I thought it was kind of neat. It's like, well, you know, how can you change your world but also kind of leave it intact but just kind of revise? Like, it's a major revision, but it, it does leave a lot of foundation there. So that was kind of nice. I'd be curious to hear if there was any... Like, there's... Um... Are you familiar with the Riemann hypothesis? I've heard the name. It, it's not super important to the details, except that it is currently unproven. And there's a lot of uh, research that's ongoing that will say, like, you know, uh, assuming the Riemann hypothesis has been proven, then such and such follows. Uh, so, like, in this case, I wonder if there's any, any, like, published work that was, like, banking on sets being able to contain themselves. And, you know, what happened to that? Hmm, that's interesting. So the next definition after the paradox is a graph is an object consisting of two sets called its vertex set and its edge set. And it was interesting to me to think about like 
you know, we, we were talking about earlier how graphs aren't, aren't necessarily these things on a 2D plane that are drawn out. They are these mathematical concepts, but didn't actually, that I didn't internalize that until I thought about it like, oh, you could actually express what a graph is by just describing the, the edges and the vertices as these two separate things. Combine them, you get, you get the graph. This seemed very familiar to me um, from some of the math courses I took in college, um, making these sets. I feel like I've done this before. I feel like, I feel like I'm unearthing some past trauma. <laughs> Let's see. It just seems like familiar, but no, I can, I can, I can go through. It's okay. It's therapeutic. So I think based off of this definition, the smallest graph, well, for a given definition of small, which we'll leave to intuition, but the smallest graph would be a single vertice with no edges. I think that would fit this definition. Does that sound right? That sounds right to me. The the edge set can be empty. The vertice set cannot, or the vertex set, excuse me. But that's a pretty boring graph. <laughs> Doesn't yeah. excite me. And I assume that the vertice set needs to be non-empty. There needs to be at least one vertex. Other, otherwise, you just have nothing. You're talking about nothing. Yeah. Although it is kind of interesting to uh, think about if there's a null set, what is a null graph and the closest, the smallest we could get would be a, just the dot, but that doesn't count as null, right? So my programmer self is thinking, oh, cool. So a graph is a definition of a type that is non-nullable. Hmm. Is there no concept of an empty graph? The empty graph? According to yeah. this definition, there's... The definition says the vertex set is a finite non-empty set. So there has to be something. Hmm. There you go. There is no empty graph. <laughs> there is a definition of a null graph, right? But it's like it's parameterized by the number of vertexes. So like the null one graph is the graph which has one vertex and no edges. Well, then we need to talk about what we think is null because I'm just not there. We just defined it. <laughs> that is later in this chapter, isn't that, Brian? It is. It, it was what we were talking about yep, was ringing some bells, go. so I flipped ahead. Yep. All right. I need to. I need to do better at, at memory. That's all right. So, how many graphs did you just draw for fun, just out of curiosity? Open question Z of the room. Zero. Zero. What? I was reading on Kindle. I was mostly reading, like laying down in bed or on a plane. I wasn't really in a place I could doodle. What better place to draw graphs than on a plane? Come on. Uh. I was on a plane with a toddler. I mean, that's like a graph-generating machine. <laughs> really? You should have just observed and, and then tried to count the different graphs she made. That, that would be a fun exercise. How to torture your child with math. I didn't draw anything, but I do enjoy uh, not physically drawing things, but manipulating the images in my head. Uh, and so there were quite a many of these that were transformed into 3D space and, and altered as we go. So I, I actually enjoyed that too. When we got to the part where it's like, oh, imagine this point moves here. And I was like, oh, I was like expanding these things in my head in 3D. I was like, this is cool. And it's like, now move this here. And I was like, no, 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 no shut up. I'm just going to do this myself. Like, <laughs> I really enjoyed that part of imagining these, these things moving in like 3D and stuff. Um, the part I don't recall, um, 
reading is when they defined what it meant to be uh, pieces. Because I remember the one part where it's like, now I'm not going to define what one or two piece means. And I was like, well, crap, we're going to talk about that for the next like four pages, but you're not going to define it. Thanks. So that kind of burned me. I was like, why won't you define this? Um, and I honestly don't recall if you defined it later in the chapter. I kind of zoned out at some point. But um, yes, I did enjoy the kind of visualization of that stuff. So one thing that'll help us when we get to isomorphism is uh, the note that edge crossings don't count, that essentially mm. these things may be drawn into dimensional space, but if you can transform them in any form of three-dimensional space and then collapse them back down to two-dimensional, um, well, and that's getting ahead of... <laughs> but... Uh, to keep us squarely where we are right now. The edge crossings don't count. And so you can imagine them as happening uh, like a, a city underpass, uh, a city highway underpass, where the map you're looking at has to display them as crossing, but they don't really necessarily interact. That is a very good point. I wonder if anyone ever teaches, like, you know, if, if um, I don't know, like using some other visual representation that doesn't involve a line, where there's like I don't, like a tag of some sort where it's like node 10 or vert vertex 10 has like a special tag that's like a fish. And so like anything that's connected with 10 has like a little fish drawn right next to it. <laughs> and then you're not like confused when you're like, oh, wait, the line crossed. Is that a vertex? I don't know. Yeah. Like, that does that... Painful. So my first thought there is that I'm just going to mentally draw the lines. But maybe that's just how I've been conditioned to think about graphs. Maybe that's... You maybe if you presented that I, Well, yeah, maybe if you presented that idea to a child, they wouldn't necessarily think that because they haven't necessarily been conditioned to think the way I have. Okay. There are some visualizations, um, some programs I've used over the years where like you mouse over one vertex and it, it highlights all the edges to that vertex so you can very clearly see how many connections it has and what it's connected to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is funny. I had the same reaction. I was like, oh, no. The lines are so helpful. They allow me to use some of my visual uh, intuition to make conclusions. But I can definitely see places where it is somewhat misleading. And especially as we get over to equivalence and isomorphism. Actually, if they were just fishes, it would be far (laughs) easier. And if you think back uh, to our previous book where we were just interacting with concepts of computers not as physical tangible objects but as code honestly if we never drew any of these graphs the isomorphism section of this book would be super simple instead of the 10 pages of like well this one looks like that one if you transform it this way it would be almost more like okay line everything up sort it alphabetically or somehow sort one of them alphabetically and then try to sort the second one so that it looks exactly like the other one, and then you're done. Boom. I also, as a programmer who's made introduction to graphs, was uh, being told to never do a uh, diacyclical graph. Nope. Uh, words, right? Uh, but that thing that we're never supposed to do because it has too many circles that lead into each other and everything has a dependency and therefore your code will never run. That thing. Uh, <laughs> those That's do not cyclical. count. Right? Ah, yes. Yes, it is. It's a cyclical graph. And, yeah. 
For some reason, I, I remember the acronym DAG. It's something I had to take an exam on. That um, is, yeah. Sorry, go on. <laughs> no, uh, clearly I did not take in enough of Programming 101. Um, but it is it was interesting to see this very casual dismissal of, oh, we're not going to talk about directional graphs. The yeah. so D- DAG is, is DAG, uh, Directed Acyclic Graph. So ah, yes. that means there is direction and there is no cycle. Um, yes. I know that because that's what Terraform, the software I work on, uses uh, in order to construct infrastructure in a... The, the, the reason, one of the reasons why it uses a DAG is so that it can uh, decide all these things it wants to create and it'll do so in parallel at best, as best it can. And so it uses a DAG in part um, so that it knows what has to come before what and it can tell if two things aren't related because they're on different paths of the DAG that it can create them in parallel. Um, but it'll detect cycles because you can't, you can't have A depend on C and B depend on A, which... C depends on B, and then just... I think I said that right. Anyway, so yeah, we we use a DAG in our software. Yeah, fun fact, the uh, CS program uh, at the school I went to for grad school, was not in the CS program, but um, took a couple classes, and they uh, had this slightly embarrassing history of their undergraduate program. The course dependencies used to have... used to be a cyclic graph. Whoops. Yeah, you know, <laughs> details. It's just a university. Yeah, reading that um, paragraph that we will not discuss directed graphs in this book, I was a little disappointed because that seemed like the most applicable mm. to my my day-to-day. Yeah, me too. <laughs> but that's okay. Maybe we should read the table of contents first, am I right? Yeah. Also, while not being directed, uh, the definition of a graph also precludes loops and schemes, which is a word I learned yeah, they can never loop onto themselves, and there can never be multiple edges between two two vertices. Yeah, the uh, loops. Uh, well, and honestly, both the loops and skeins, the diagrams reminded me of very much of our our last book. I was like, oh, those oh, are yeah, familiar. The state, the state yeah, machines. the same machines. Um, and and then nope, another thing we're not going to look at. Yeah. So I think now we're into the section where we will learn that the null graph is a thing. It's just not what we as programmers might expect it to be. Oh, yeah. It was, it was neat that they have, like, um, I don't know who I'm saying they about, but there are common graphs that you can use to denote something that make it easier to talk about things like null graphs and graphs with full meshes. And Yeah. It's definitely interesting to see this cyclic graph defined uh without any sense of directionality. So uh, I definitely see those diagrams, and I'm like, but you could not have a cycle in there if they were <laughs> the wrong direction. And then, of course, we have the, the null graph in, or null graph on n vertices. So this is, this is where the world's smallest graph of one dot is actually the null graph on one vertice. But it could be like the null graph, which like the only element is the entire universe, makes you think. Yeah. See, maybe maybe we're just thinking about it wrong, Ryan. In order to get the null graph, we just need to go bigger instead of smaller. Exactly. I do enjoy complete graphs, especially once you get up into like the 
you know, larger vertices, vertice counts. It becomes like a magic eye diagram. Yeah. I feel like I was introduced to this the, um, complete graph as a part of, is it like philosophers trying to eat and like who picks up their fork first or something? The dining <laughs> philosophers problem? Yeah, but I, yeah, but now I think maybe that's the wrong one. It's definitely one where like everybody needs to introduce themselves to everyone else. And so how many introductions do you have? Uh, Which is by definition, the number of edges in a complete graph where the number of vertices is the number of people in a room. Which is not the dining philosopher's problem. <laughs> it's the uh, stranger philosopher's problem. Yeah. Was anyone else surprised by the utility graph? Yeah, I was just to say that. I don't know. I was surprised, and I, I didn't. I couldn't tell what the significance of it was. Like everything yeah. else seemed obvious. Like yes, of course, there's a null graph for every, um, you know number of, of vertices of course there's a complete graph for, for everyone also cyclic, cyclic graph makes sense there can be one of those but why why these uh these six vertices and whatever number of edges here yeah i mean in theory there could have been three houses and five utility companies in this in this town but yeah i i definitely feel like we must be being set up to come back to that and that it's going to be referred to maybe not for the properties of the graph itself, but for the paradox or the, not the paradox, but the, um, the conclusion that it comes to, which is that if you have, uh, six vertices and you want to six vertices split into two groups and you want to connect everyone in the first group to the second group, there's no way to do so without crossing lines in a two-dimensional space. Right. Maybe the utility graph is utility graph because it's the first number of vertices where that that becomes true. Like maybe if you had three and two or two and three, it would be possible. Well, if you have two and two... Two and two. Oh, no, because, yeah, because the houses don't need to connect to each other. Right. Yeah, I'm trying to imagine all these other ways. <laughs> like, like, and how would you do... So it's three and three is where the problem arises. What would you do? Two and three, and, and that's fine. You can work that out. Or yeah, three and two. It makes sense in my head. Like on a two D plane, maybe maybe that is the first example of when you can no longer uh, do it without crossing any lines. Why are we on a two D plane? <laughs> we don't need that. It's true. Now I'm trying to expand this into three D. And part of me thinks it might have just been some some graph that was commonly used as a as a teaching tool for something and then it just kind of got a name and ended up in textbooks like this one but yeah like I, you're I calling shenanigans to... on the story about the utility company yeah okay so maybe i'll research this more later yeah justin i feel like you're onto something maybe we can have more than one utility company for an entire city it sounds like a monopoly to me <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah so yeah, I think the next section is uh, a lot of that. The math I was remembering for the uh, maybe we, maybe let's call it like the speed dating problem. <laughs> maybe that was what it was because I don't feel like why many, would you? <laughs> did they give a name to this at the end of it? The yeah, how many how many edges in a complete graph? No, I feel like I I don't think they did because 
we can speak about it using the mathematical terms, which is, you know, count the number of edges for a complete graph. But yeah, I feel like as, uh, as younger students, there was a common way of this being phrased to us. Mm. Um, See, I, I read this, this section, uh, I looked, it's something that as soon as I started reading the book, I kind of wanted to figure out as I started looking at examples of graphs and thinking about graphs in the, in the first and second chapter. So I'm glad that he got into this really quickly. Um, so I looked at the example, like he said on a piece of paper, I drew the first few complete graphs and I count their edges and list the totals. Uh, so looking at that, like I had no idea how you would possibly, you know, mathematically count all the edges. And then um, same thing, like looking at graphs on, on paper, I did not think to myself how it could possibly be done. But then by the end of this section, when he explained uh, the algorithm, and I thought about it for a little bit, it seemed really obvious. And I, I kind of yeah. lost the ability to to think about it from, from fresh eyes again. Yeah, I kind of feel like that's the beauty of a well-done proof, is that once you read the proof and understand it, you get kind of frustrated that the author wasted three pages of their time <laughs> instead of just saying the, let's see, two sentences. Three sentences, I'm sorry that he needed to um, explain why you can easily compute the number of edges in a complete graph if you know the number of vertices. And I, I do feel like the proof is kind of a... Um, the way the proof is, is worded makes me appreciate why this problem was phrased to me as an introduction problem. Because I think it's really easy to understand why you need to divide by half if you phrase it in terms of an introduction. Because it's kind of a, it's a very instinctual thing for us to understand that once, when two people meet, you don't need to do it again. <laughs> hopefully, right, that's well, like the <laughs> non-directionality plays a big role. Yeah. Yeah, and the, and the negative, subtracting one makes sense because you're never going to have an edge connected to yourself. I feel like you just throw me into this and I just break this entirely because I would be the one to forget who I am <laughs> and need to be introduced to everyone five times. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad I know that now. That This, this comes into in, in handy when you're talking about um, like team sizes or company sizes and communication patterns. Mm -hmm. Like for to disseminate information, how many conversations need to happen if each person is talking one-on-one. -on -one. Or... or or for all information to disseminate. <laughs> if, if your completely. company communication looks like the complete graph, you are <laughs> completely screwed. You're doing you're doing something wrong. Yeah. Um, but you know, it is true that on on teams, like as you add people, the the communication goes up. Yep. Know, I don't want to say exponentially because we're reading a math book right now, but uh, it goes significantly. Up quickly. We can yeah, say. Significantly. <laughs> yeah. When you said that, I just had the thought of, wow, does the complete graph represent? visually what it's like to work in an open office space <laughs> oh snap i think you should write a medium post about that <laughs> oh man yeah i feel like that would have been twitter worthy like five years ago and now yeah i probably could make that <laughs> into not just 140 characters but an entire post subgraphs uh were pretty intuitive to me that if you have a graph and you just take away some of it that is the subgraph um, compliments I was not expecting. Yeah, compliments was something that 
I hope we get back to because I feel like it's going to be interesting. I don't. Yeah. It makes me think. Gosh, it might be interesting to see if there are things you could prove about a graph, knowing that its complement has certain properties. But you know, this chapter goes through so many different definitions to lay the groundwork for future chapters. Um, that I kind of I understand what a complement is. I could draw it, but I'm not necessarily excited about the concept. So let's talk about isomorphism. So why don't we? start off with just talking about the concept of isomorphism and the fact that there is a type of that what we've talked about previously about equality isn't necessarily the kind of equality we're going to be talking about going forward. Yeah, previously we defined equality as well, I mean, equality is still defined as if the vertex, the vertex set is identical, and the edge set is identical, then the graphs are, are equal. Yeah, and so isomorphism starts to say that, well, honestly, if we can just switch out the labels one for the other. So, you know, sure, a, a vertex is called P, but if it's actually called T, and all the properties are the same, all the edges are the same, that it's isomorphic, and, and it can have many of the same features, and it can be considered the same structure. Yeah, it's like if one is connected to two and two is connected to three, that's the same as if like apple pie is connected with bacon, which is also connected with like a dry erase marker. It's <laughs> it's isomorphic. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I am curious to see like how isomorphism, like I know we're probably in this book, but like how does it actually apply to um, either our world or to programming or whatever? Because um, it seems like it has a lot of good or interesting properties if two graphs are isomorphic, but I wonder what application that has. Maybe if you could model two things in the same way that are isomorphic. Yeah, I think it was interesting as a programmer coming into this where I'm used to variable names being totally mutable and not having any significance to see that isomorphism is actually something totally separate from equality. Yeah. Because in my mind... Obviously, if you can just change the labels, if you can just change the variable names, it's the same thing. My code that I write in really verbose JavaScript that helps people debug it, when it's minified, is the same code, but, you know, the minification has, has reduced my beautifully named variable name to X or Y. But I consider it the same code. But Good example. It just blew my mind. <laughs> minification well, does that? I thought it just removed all the spaces and new lines. <laughs> I think it's well there's uglification and it adds some yeah. <laughs> it's javascript it's already ugly yeah I mean I think it is a good point though that like if I open up the minified file and I'm trying to debug something I back away real fast and <laughs> I find the unminified or I make sure I'm being served up the non-minified version um, so there is obviously a level of equivalence that uh, goes beyond hey, does this function the same? But as a programmer, I'm so used to, yeah, if it cracks like a duck, it's a duck, that, uh, you know, that distinction between equality and isomorphism uh, is one I have to spend time to think about, not necessarily something that's surprising. Yeah, I guess, like, as a programmer, something like I could have two functions name different things that take different arguments, but but actually have the same exact shape and call perform the same operations on those objects, then the functions could be isomorphic and I could 
replace them with one if I'm not sure that's a good idea for clarity in, in some cases, but I can see how that there there are probably instances in, in, in many code bases I've worked on where, where that is true. The idea of isomorphism, uh like looking at simple graphs, like if you have uh just three vertices and a complete graph, like a, a triangle, um it seemed very instinctive to to know that if the labels are different, but they look the same, um, then it would just be instinctive that they are isomorphic. But I found it interesting how the author introduced uh, ways to check isomorphism and also the, uh, I forget what they were called, the, the four rules, the four properties that isomorphic graphs would, would, would have. It was um, the edge set, the vertice set, the, the count of each of those is the same. And there were two other ones that are escaping me right now. Sorry, I don't have anything to contribute. I was still thinking about functions and programming. Like, <laughs> well, no, like, are two functions isomorphic if they have the same signature, right? Like, they accept XYZ uh, parameters of, of types and return this or, or this set of types. I think that they also take into account their behavior. Yeah, that's also true. So, so I mean, that's where I started. Like, if you were to have a function and to have tests and then refactor it, as long as the signature change and the test results are the same, are those two functions isomorphic? Um, if we were to abuse this term and bring it into this world, I would say yes, but uh, until you find a test case that proves otherwise, right? Until you find that, well, it's not a paradox, but until you find that example of where it's not... No, that's terribly there, relevant. Segue. There is some work in like the typed FP communities. Um, like I think Philip Wadler is a is a researcher who's published stuff like there's if you consider a function that maps from like a collection of things of type A to another collection of things of type A. Um, there might be a little bit more to it, but basically he proves that like there's one and only one function possible, and it's map. Right, like innumerable map in Ruby, um, but like mm. I think to the point of isomorphism, you could implement map using you know any number of token. Like you could implement it and as sort of a, in a superficial way that looks totally different from something else. End of the day, it's the same function. Interesting. Some of that feels a little bit different than the isomorphism discussed here, but it also doesn't feel different. I don't know. Yeah, Clint, I really liked your point that. It's uh, that things might be the same until it's proven differently. And I feel like that's the conclusion we get at the end of his four suggestions for finding isomorphic graphs is that, well, we have succeeded in helping you uh, find isomorphic graphs by cutting out a lot of things that aren't isomorphic. Um, but you still might, these rules can't define what is isomorphic because there's always the chance that, you know, you'll find something else that violates one of the, the points in the definition of isomorphism. And I, I feel like that resonates with a lot of things in programming. It's really easy to say that, oh yeah, no, that functionality is totally, totally different. It's really hard to prove that you could combine two functions um, if they're, you know, with sufficient complexity, obviously, if you add in state, right? Um, and so it's, I feel like it's harder to come up with 
easy rules to follow to prove something rather than to just find something that will disprove a lot of things. No. The other two properties I was thinking of were the distribution of degrees. So that was um, the number of vertices having the same number of edges. That was really interesting to think about as, as a rule. And then the number of pieces of a graph, which as I believe Amy mentioned earlier, that they really didn't define, but we'll, we'll define in a later chapter. Yeah, I mentioned that because it's like these two are isomorphic even though they're not in the same pieces. Or or was it that they couldn't be isomorphic because they were in different pieces? I forget. But I, I they like the author kind of glossed over that and be like, well, even though they're not in the same number of pieces. I'm like, well, what's that? Well, we'll define that later. Thanks. But then they keep like referencing it. Like, stop. If you're not going to define it, stop referencing it so much. Was, was if I had a hazard a guess, I would guess that it has something to do with disjointedness. If I was to cook up my own definition, it would be like within a graph, there exist two or more subgraphs which share no uh, vertices. I came up with a similar definition in the course of this conversation. Um, but yeah, I didn't really think about it until then. It's like, again, my, my visualization of can I take these two things apart and like have them have all the edge the the edge sets could they to be could they be two physical pieces of like wire and right you know like losing a connection or anything yeah could i could i could they could just be two things laying on top of each other thinking of like a 2d plane or whatever um yeah i feel like maybe it will end up being are these is a piece is a subgraph of the original graph for which it is not has no overlap with any other subgraphs. That's a much more intelligent way of saying what I was thinking in my head. Yeah. It was like, yeah, that. You could have just said, that's exactly what I was thinking. No, well, no, I want to give her credit on using great words when I couldn't think of any. Like, well, but I also think that it's a very good point that there, this book is flipping between relying on some of our intuition to quickly grasp some basics of well, yeah, like, I can see that if these things were, like, twigs lashed together with, like, balls of tar, I could separate those. Uh, and that's that's very clearly intuition. And then jumping back to logic, and, you know, I think it's a hard problem to try to get someone up to speed on, to learn a complex topic, right? But I, Clint, I think your point is fair that, you know, if there is such strong emphasis on logic and definition that maybe it's worth it to stop and uh, make that definition clear, even if it it does result in a tangent and it does disrupt the flow of of discussing what the author wants to discuss. Yeah, now I'm super confused. Oh, wait, no. No, I'm not. Okay. So they... Well, I was super confused there because the author does go and say, you know, I'm not going to define pieces, but I will tell you that the two graphs in figure 27 are each in one piece. I click on figure 27. Okay, and then the figure in 28 is in four pieces, which I totally did not get how that was four pieces, but then I noticed inside there, there are actually two single vertexes that that actually makes things easier to understand. Um, yeah. Like, you can't take that figure 28 apart. The A, B, C, and D, you cannot take that apart. Because you yeah, end up definitely. with edges that have no vertices. Like, you can't do that. But it has H and I inside of it, which are its own pieces. And same with GF and E. You cannot take that apart. 
you won't have an actual graph. Like it has to stay like that. So that, that makes more sense. I'm curious if the the intuition we're having right now is what going to be what is explained later or if it's going to be completely different. Maybe. Um, so the author goes on and does a ton of graphs and shows or describes how they're isomorphic because they all have the same vertices and they all have the same edges. Um, and they go on to say that all you have to do is check that the number of, oh, the numbers in parentheses. So the method that is described is if you have two graphs that are just labeled differently and even look differently, if you can relabel one of them with parentheses to match the first one and still have all the same edge set or the, the ver same vertex set and the same edge set, then they're isomorphic, right? Even if they, even if they look different. Um, yeah. Which figure 33 explains, and of course the people listening in can't see, but uh, it, it's easier to understand that once you kind of look at that one. I feel like it does a good job with the parentheses and labeling things. I definitely have the sense that we needed decoder rings for these. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that we just needed to discover what, you know, Cheerios brand or whatever decoder ring he was using here. Um, and then magically all would be explained. But I do think it's interesting that by the end of the chapter, we've disposed of even labeling anything at all. Uh, he mentions that there are two forms of sameness that we're concerned about in graph theory. It's equality and isomorphism, and only isomorphism, or, or predominantly we're going to be concerned about that from, from here on out in the book. Which is funny because the entire chapter was graphs with labels until that point. You need training wheels before you can uh, ride the two-wheeler. Yeah. Justin, you made mention of like the four properties of isomorphic. Yes. Uh, and then he does... The author does give an example of two graphs that share all four properties but are not isomorphic. Yeah, I guess he also mentioned that like you, you can easily disprove if, if uh, two graphs are not isomorphic if any of those properties do not hold, but having all four properties does not mean two graphs are isomorphic. Uh, so it's like a square is a rectangle, but a rectangle is not a square. Sure. <laughs> have you ever heard that expression? I haven't, certainly. I have. Yeah. Because a square, so a rectangle is two sets of equal sides, which a square is definitely that, right? It has two sets of equal sides. They also happen to be but equal to each other. a square is four equal sides, and a rectangle is not four equal sides. And, and a square is isomorphic to a rectangle. Sorry, yeah, probably. It's a bad joke, sorry. <laughs> you tried. In other words, it is necessary but not sufficient. Are those words that he uses? I don't know if he uses those words, but those are words that I've heard before, where it's like, if it if it is an isomorphism, then it must be the case, but all that stuff it itself does not prove the isomorphism. You, you gotta, you gotta B-Y-O-I bring your own yeah, isomorphism. Yeah, I feel like the four rules are kind of like the guidelines they, they give to elementary schoolers who are learning multiplication tables and starting out on division as to... Well, if it's divisible by seven, it'll probably end in these digits or something, right? Um, gosh, it's been so long. Um, but those guidelines don't always, they're not the comprehensive definition of what it means to be divisible by seven because the definition of what it means to be divisible by seven is that you can divide it evenly by seven. And so I think a lot of this chapter 
is, a, is stuff that we can't necessarily verbalize. It's more getting us as readers able to identify isomorphisms and, you know, not necessarily enhancing on the, the definition, which is similar to many of the others. It is three sentences, uh, but rather helping us identify them and, and visually start to see them, maybe honing our intuition even. So did any of you do any of the exercises? No. No. In, in my head, but no. Not, it's the most not, fun not. part. <laughs> you got to write them all down. I did not do all the exercises, but I did do some of them. And yeah, I'd like I, to do more of them. If I was going to pick one that I thought was that was P-neat, um, I don't know, the, the n- number seven one I thought was pretty cool. And then I, you know, some of them have solutions in the back too, so you can at least check your work. But I didn't, I didn't get to any of the later exercises past, like, number 10. The isomorphism exercises seemed interesting, especially 38 with the chess tournament. Essentially just a, a, a bunch of graphs mm. that look the same shape-ish, but have different... Uh, just speaking about, like, how they're, how they're drawn, they look the same shape, but have different lines in the middle, different edges. Uh, and I would like to go through them and try to figure out if they are isomorphic or not. For 38, that's just calculating the number of edge sets between 25 vertices, right? There's an equation for that given it's earlier like the complete chapter. Each, each player has like a complete uh, spanning graph to all the other players, right? So you're getting oh, a I'm, oh, I'm sorry. So maybe, each vertice would have, what, 24 edges? Mm-hmm. I, was, I was mistaken. I'm talking about uh, exercises well, 30 through 37. Just in the Kindle version that I'm reading, those uh, appear below 38, so I was a little confused. Oh, okay. I was looking at number 38 about the chess tournament. Sorry. Oh, yeah. That 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 does look like a good set. No, now I kind of regret not going through them. Especially with these exercises about identifying isomorphisms. One of the things we haven't touched on yet is the fact that... Um, so the author does talk about how an isomorphism is not created. It is discovered. Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah, he says... Graphs do not become isomorphic when you discover an isomorphism. They are the, of themselves isomorphic or not, whether or not anyone discovers that the fact or bothers to prove it. And I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure, uh, Clint might have some, some thoughts on that. Uh, but I, I do feel like, you know, even if that, that language doesn't necessarily ring true to many of us uh, or um, some of us uh, that looking at these exercises especially the, the 30 to 37 where we are discovering things that are finding uh, isomorphisms that at least there is some fun in it sometimes um, I know personally uh, one of my favorite things uh, I live in a city that has a decent number of bikes and there's a a concept that's parallel to isomorphism uh, that is homeomorphism, which is for, so a topology is the equivalent of a, well, it's not the equivalent of a three-dimensional graph, but imagine homeomorphism is uh, what proves a coffee cup is the same as a donut because there's really only one hole in it. Um, but you can, you can wander the streets uh, and see people who have poorly locked up their bikes uh, and the way you prove that is to take a look at the combination of their bike, the lock, and the uh, parking mechanism, um, the 
grid or whatever that they have that the store has for them to lock their bike to. Um, and if any one of those three things is a circle that is separable, not entangled from uh, the other three, then you have a problem and your bike can be stolen. Uh, and so while I'm not quite sure about the language that the author uses to say that an isomorphism is always discoverable, at least there's some fun, I think, in going out and finding them. There's some fun in going out and stealing bikes. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that. Is crime fun to you, Amy? <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, I think it is, it's interesting to see that there, there is, in theory, some, some application to this. Obviously, don't steal bikes, but uh, lock up your bike better, perhaps? That's a good, uh, that's a good moral, I think. I, I would certainly find joy and fun in this, un, you know, unraveling a puzzle of how to steal this bike. <laughs> I, I wouldn't care for actually stealing it. But if you look at it that way, of, oh, this is a puzzle? Like, I would certainly enjoy figuring out how to undo it. That gets into some really dark, like, logical or, like, not logical, but, like, ethical implications. Like, would you solve puzzles if you knew what, like, the result of your solving them was? Because the result of my solving that puzzle is not me stealing the bike. It's just proving that it can be done. Right. What, what if it was, like, a level of abstraction higher, though? It's like, can you untangle these paper clips? But, like, in a parallel dimension, you're, like, stealing a ton of bikes. <laughs> anyway, we're getting a little far afield. <laughs> <laughs> that got really weird, man. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's a good time to call it. Yeah, maybe. So next time, I guess we'll segue on to Chapter 3, Planar Graphs. Uh, but thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Thanks. Bye. See you.